This is the Growing Up Rock Podcast with your hosts, Stephen Michael and Sonny Hollywood Pooney. Now, crank it up. What's up there, Hollywood? You haven't run out of ice cream yet, have you? Oh, dude, couldn't even get ice cream. Are you kidding? You think toilet paper and paper towels is the only thing that disappearing? I went to the grocery store the other day. There was not an egg to be found, no matter what color it was. And the only ice cream left was like Lucky Charms flavor dryers or some shit. Like there was nothing. It was gutted. So, bro, what are you doing? You're not beating your wife or uh, your kids, are you? <laughs> no, I'm just not eating any ice cream, really. So uh, uh, when this thing's over, I'm going to be like binging on ice cream. I mean, but dude, is it like your body makeup and your blood like 25% ice cream? Uh, yeah, that's why I'm 411 pounds. That's exactly <laughs> why. <laughs> that's so stereotypical of a podcaster we don't want to create that uh that stigma <laughs> let's stay away from that uh, nice <laughs> so what else is going on man with you how's how's the family how's everybody surviving in these uh different times i guess i should say so i won't tell you who it was because uh, i want to protect the innocent but i have a friend who connects with me yesterday and says Who's Tom Gigliotti? <laughs> and I'm like, see, it's not just me. Even my friends think it should be pronounced that way. So, Tommy, your your name's all messed up. That's what the problem is. <laughs> giggity, giggity. <laughs> see, I'm not as handsome as that guy. That guy shouldn't be on podcasting because uh, he's too handsome for that. He should be doing something else. Are we talking about Tom? Yeah, of course. We're not talking about Zeus. We can't possibly be talking about Tom or <laughs> Zeus, for that matter of fact. <laughs> right now they're screaming at me they're probably gonna be texting us as soon as i hear this it's awful <laughs> yeah we got you know going back to what we're doing here we got a lot of friends in the podcast community not everybody enjoys the same music we jump genres a little bit depending on who you're listening to but i would say the consistent theme through everybody their knowledge and their gaps of how much they've heard of might be different but Y&T is basically loved by everybody across all the podcasts. Would you say that's true? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I don't, I haven't heard any of the podcaster friends just say they're not, you know, they're not Y&T. I've heard a lot of them say they don't know enough about them, but not necessarily dislike. So yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. Yeah. And they just, you know, they got this fan base that once you're in, man, it's hard to get out because there's so much great material and uh, as soon as you kind of are introduced to it, you get hooked. Yeah, and I'm excited. So tonight's episode, we've got the bass player from YNT, Aaron Lee, and Aaron will be the second guy from YNT on the podcast. We had Dave Menachetti for our big 100th episode last year, which was fantastic. He spent a great deal of time. We had a really cool episode. Now we got Aaron, so we just have to go after John and Mike, and we'll complete the set of four, right? 
Yeah, you know, everybody's story is going to be a little bit different, but uh, you got to admit, Aaron is a cool dude. Like, you meet him, he's cool. You talk to him, he's cool. He's got some pet peeves, so you might <laughs> want to listen up for that, because now that I know those, I will watch out for that. But, uh, you know, it's kind of nice to talk to people in rock that are humble, they're happy. It's not this whole, you know, they don't listen to me enough. They don't listen, you know, they don't do this. They don't do that. We too are too much. We blah, blah, blah. He just had all positive things to say, really. Yeah, I love the fact that they're doing music and in a band that they love. You know, that's what I really love because I think there are musicians out there that are producing music that maybe isn't necessarily their their bang zone. Maybe they got cornered into it and that started putting food on the table. I don't know. You know, it's just my my perception of of artists out there. And so I'm glad that Aaron ended up with a band that he loved to begin with. And all those guys just seem to be, you know, really into Y&T, the history and the sound. And I, I love it. Yeah, it's nice to have, and I don't know how many bands have this. I'm sure there's more than a few. I'm just missing some in my mind, but there's the guys that have that huge following, right? The Metallicas, the Guns N' Roses, mm-hmm. they're going to pretty much go sell out anywhere, that kind of thing. Bon Jovi, really. Yep. Then there's guys that are struggling, and they can't fill a club. They can't get a date from a promoter. We'll leave those names off the list. Then you got these bands that have this core fan base. That's enough to fill clubs and make you feel good that you're playing in front of two, 300 people in the U.S. is enough to be able to let you go abroad and play on festivals in Europe, enough to where you can go to Japan and sell out possibly theaters three or four nights and play for three hours, and you really didn't have to do a bunch of new material to do it, and those same core fans keep coming Keep coming back, keep coming back, no matter how many times they see you, which uh, I think that's great. And YNT is one of those. Yeah, I would encourage the average listener, even if they're not a YNT fan or currently don't know a ton about YNT, I would encourage the listeners to go out there and grab that documentary because YNT has a great history, which is first, that's the cool thing. They have a really rich and great history. And they're what I would call quietly making noise all these years. So to your point, they haven't gotten the following that a Metallica or Van Halen or some band like that has done over the years, but they've got such a loyal fan base that it does allow them to go around the U.S., tour, play sold out clubs, play packed clubs to where they're not just playing to one or two people, go abroad play huge festivals and sustain life on the road. And you heard Aaron talk about it, or you'll hear Aaron talk about it in the interview where, you know, a lot of bands can't do that. They can go out for two months and sustain life and be happy and good for them. You know? Yeah. And the history has everything that uh, a fan, a music fan would want to know about and knows about other bands, right? They have the the drug years. They got the druggies in the band. They got the firings and rehirings. They got the replacement guys that some were okay with, some weren't okay with. They got bad members that died off. They've got one original member left that's carrying the flag. You know, you think about all those things said out loud and a bunch of bands pop in your head, but YNT ain't one of them. 
Yeah, and I'll tell you another important part of this, and I think people don't think about this. There's a lot of things that go into running a band and an operation, and I think Y&T has a really important component of that, which is Dave's wife, Jill Menachetti. She has done a lot to keep things moving in the right direction, and you'll hear Aaron in the interview, they even refer to her as a fifth member, which is great, uh, because there's a lot of work in running a band, man. It ain't just getting up on stage and playing. Yeah, and I'm sure it's not all peaches and cream, but I don't think you ever hear about like Wendy Deal or Sharon Osbourne or Jeff Tate's wife being the fifth or eighth member of their band. You know what I mean? It's Jill seems to have a different respect level with Aaron, which is great to hear. Yeah, no doubt. So awesome. Well, uh, you ready to get into this? Because uh, it's a good one. Yeah, definitely. And before uh, we get into the interview, just want to let everybody know Follow Aaron on Facebook, follow him on Twitter. He does some acoustic stuff and I think he's going to stream some stuff online and you know, he's always kind of out and about and connects a lot and he didn't really pimp his stuff. Technically we didn't give him an opportunity to do so, but I want to tell you guys to follow him on his social media. Yeah. Great point. And we'll have all this stuff in the show notes, all the links and everything that'll help you guys connect with Aaron out there after you listen to this interview, but hope you guys discover something new and enjoy this. All right. That's it from us. We will talk to you guys next week. See ya later. Hey, this is Aaron Lee with Y&T, and you're listening to the Growing Up Rock Podcast with Stephen and Sonny. Check it out. Turn it up. Welcome to the Grown Up Rock Podcast. We got a special one for you guys tonight. With us today is Aaron Lee, bass player for YT. What's going on, Aaron? What's not going on, man? <laughs> <laughs> Life in the pursuit of happiness, and most importantly, a little bit of rock and roll that keeps us all sane at this point in time, right? Very true. Very true. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a. Uh... It's what it is, man. Just hanging and uh, trying to do what I can do. Just hanging around right now. Just got off tour. We were out for two months and just trying to wind down, man. Yeah, it's all good. So what we do with most of the people that are on the show for the first time is we start off with your grown-up rock story, as we like to call it. So what was your introduction into rock and roll and hard rock music? 
Well, when I was, I'd say, I don't know, five years old, my, my first introduction to um, like getting into music, like to play music was my grandmother. I'll never forget this. You know, I was being just so young and it still resonates, but she came over my house and she sat me down on the couch and she had a, a practice pad, like a drum practice pad and some drumsticks. And she turns on the TV and she turns on the Mike Douglas show and she puts the sticks in my hand and she showed, she showed me how to hold the sticks traditional style. Then she uh, made me watch uh, buddy rich on the Mike Douglas show. And that was my introduction to wanting to play music. And then I, I started playing drums. So that was the beginning. And then, you know, just uh, from there, hanging around the house with my parents, my mom and, and her boyfriend or whatever at the time. And, her and her boyfriend would crank up, you know, the old Zep stuff in Boston. And, you know, I, I remember the first time I heard Nobody's Fault But Mine, man, cranked on the stereo and it scared the shit out of me.
So did you not follow that path of being a drummer if that was your first thing? Well, that's uh, the first instrument that I learned how to play, but I learned how to play guitar after that, you know, when I was a kid, about nine or 10 years, maybe eight, I don't know, somewhere in there, just picking up a guitar because it was laying around the house, an old acoustic. Right. And just started banging on that. And then I found a mandolin around the house and started doing pick scrapes on that, just picking up whatever I could. But once I learned guitar, I was still playing drums, but there were so many guitar players in my neighborhood when, when I was a kid. And there was some really good drummers too, but we wanted to make a band and there was no bass. So I needed to uh, decide what I was going to do. And I just decided to play bass because there was better guitar players and better drummers. <laughs> so you ended up playing bass fairly early then in your career. Yeah, I picked up a bass at like 13 or 14. Okay. That's interesting because I noticed that there's always seems to be a need for a bass player. And I've noticed lately there's a lot of great guitar players that I know that have kind of transitioned to bass just so they can fill a gap more or less, you know? Yeah, it was out of necessity, really, when I was young. But I'm glad that there were better guitar players and better drummers, you know, because uh, that created a band for us. And and that's, you know, when you start woodshedding and picking up some chops and doing that kind of thing, you know, with your friends and hanging around in the garage and, you know, experimenting. And yeah, man. So that, that was the earlier parts, you know, just it's very typical, man, of how most kids, especially from the 70s, yeah. you know, back and starting bands and, and shit like that, you know? Right on. So did you have uh, some musicians that were heroes to you? Some of the guys that you looked up to? Were there people that you wanted to emulate while you were coming up? Well, of course, man. Were they the normal people? Were they the bottoms of the world and, you know, Jimi Hendrix and guys like that? Or were there anybody in particular? Well, when it just came to uh, All Out, influence from being a, a young kid and seeing it and hearing it it was kiss man all the way you know kiss is what really lit the fire for me right on and i said that's what i want to do you know along with millions of other people that said the same thing yeah you know that lit the fire man literally you know watching gene blow fire <laughs> Right. <laughs> so do you happen to remember the first uh, rock album you bought with your own money? I do. And I, I remember I pulled weeds in the backyard for two weeks. My mom said that she would take me to Tower Records in Campbell, California, if I pulled all the, the weeds in the backyard. So she takes me to the record store and I bought Kiss Alive too. Wow. And that was, uh, you know, it's everything I needed right there. And still to this day is my favorite live kiss record i just have such a love for that album yeah campbell don't exactly look the same anymore i was just there a few days ago <laughs> campbell's changed <laughs> yeah yeah it has man I, you know that's, that's my stomping ground san jose and and south bay area it's where i grew up so i i try not to go back I, i'm in uh rockland outside of sacramento now but when i do have to go to the south bay area you know yeah it's definitely changed man it's crazy now, when did you like know you had it? You know, you're playing bass, you're playing a little bit of drums, you got this band thing going. Was there a point in time that you remember where somebody said, "You know what, Aaron, you got it, dude. You are going to be a musician the rest of your life and actually make some money at it." <laughs> well, I always had supportive parents and relatives and, and things like that, friends around me from a young age that always pushed me and supported me in doing music. 
I was never told I couldn't do it. I was only told that you can do it. And, you know, if you get to make a living at it, then you're lucky. That's great. What I tell people, man, just keep doing what's put in front of you and don't question too much, you know, because you might self-sabotage yourself. Just play for the right reasons. Play because you love it, you know, because that's all that might happen. You know, you just play for the love. I am a huge believer good things happen to good people. You know, I've met you a few times now and you are absolutely good people. But this movie rock star that you're living right now, I mean, this whole Y&T thing has got to be crazy, right? It's been three years. Like, how did it happen? And and uh, are you still like, man, I'm living the movie rock star still. What's going on? Well, you know, what's funny, Sonny, is that that's what I, I mentioned to people, you know, when I try to explain my uh, unique situation and being in Y&T. I, I go, you ever hear Marky Mark in the movie Rockstar? Most people go, oh, yeah, yeah. I go, that's my life. It's very similar, you know, because Y&T from the age of 14 for me was one of my favorite bands. And Phil Kenamore, he was one of my bass influences from early on. I mean, you know, within a year of me picking up a bass, it was like Phil Kenamore was the guy, you know? I mean, I would look at, you know, the back of the Black Tiger album or the Mean Streak record, you know, and just stare at the backs of these records, reading every little liner note, looking at the pictures. And and Phil always looked so cool. And, you know, just you could tell this guy was just a consummate rock star, you know? And I wanted to be that. That's the guy I wanted to be. Of course, Gene Simmons was like, larger than life. I knew I couldn't be Gene Simmons, but you know, I could, I could at least try to play music like Kiss, you know, but they were a little out of reach to want to be like that, you know? So for me, Y&T was that band that felt like right when I heard that type of music coming out of the stereo, I could, I could hear the bass, you know, it wasn't buried in the mix. It was right on top of the mix. It was right. You could hear every line that Phil was playing and that really grabbed me. That's something that I latched on to immediately. And then I uh, shortly after started learning Y&T songs at 14, 15 years old on bass. So to come back full circle at the age of 51 and being in one of my favorite bands of my whole life and getting to play with Mr. Manichetti, a legend, you know, it is truly like that movie Rockstar, but even better, you know, because it's, it's not a movie, it's reality, you know, so pretty cool, man. Yeah, so you grow up in California, from my understanding, I obviously, I didn't grow up in California, but from what Sonny tells me, if you grow up in California and you're into rock and roll, you absolutely have to be a Y&T fan, so that makes 100% sense to me that you would grow up loving that band. Yeah, but from what I remember, I discovered Y&T on my own. No one turned me on to them. Interesting. Yeah, and I, I really, honestly, I could not... I couldn't tell you how it just came into my life somehow. I must have been flipping around at the record store and going through albums and just happened to like the cover of Black Tiger. No joke. I, I'm pretty sure that's how it happened. Hmm. And I just bought it. You know, that's how we used to do it, man. You know, you'd stare at the record covers, the cover grabs you. You're like, I'm going to buy this, take it, oh, man, check it out. Sometimes it sucks and sometimes it was, you know, legend. I'm 100% there with you. You and I are roughly the same age. So, that's how we did it in the old days, a little bit before MTV. We would just go to the record store, like you said, and it was either something that I would read in a magazine or uh, the album cover looked kick-ass. I totally bought Iron Maiden Killers because that album cover kicked ass. <laughs> yeah, man. You know, here's a funny one. 
flipping through the records one time and, and you know i think i was like still like 18 years old but uh there was still vinyl around and and i saw this cover of these what i thought were chicks on the front and they were hot man four pictures of these chicks and then i turned it over they all had dudes names and it was the band poison and thought oh man i thought that was a chick band but i still bought it and i liked the music <laughs> I think we all have similar stories with that album. I think I did the exact same thing, as a matter of fact. So that's that's awesome. Hey, so uh, were you ever offered a gig that you ended up having to turn down that maybe later you regretted? No. And I guess that goes with what I was saying is um, I, I very rarely have ever turned anything down of substance, you know. Um, I was always the one to jump in and just do it. But my beginnings are are just typical like everybody else man you know you you get in a band you play covers and then you want to start doing your own music and you struggle it out in the local scene for years and years while you're holding down a day job you know living life having kids doing your thing and and still trying to do music but you know somewhere along the way i got lucky enough and like i said just kept just doing what i felt like i should be doing trying to do it for the right reasons but you know, everything changed when I met Frank Hannon, man, is is that's when things started to take off for me. But um, before that, man, like I said, you know, it was cover bands and original bands and just playing, constantly playing. But nothing. Well, you know, you know what? There was a, a time that I auditioned for Ozzy back in the mid mid 90s, right when he was working on the Osmosis record. Yeah. You remember that? Yep. And. I guess Mike Inez was going back to Alice in Chains or something, or or he was joining Alice in Chains. So that was the time when Mike Inez was playing No More Tears tour yeah. on that album. Anyway, so they were looking for a bass player, and I heard it on the radio that you know you send in your cassette tape or your demo tape or whatever, you know. So I did. It's a little three minute jam of just me just noodling around, and then I had like a little uh, half a song in there just to show I could play, you know, with other guys and shit, but. And all of a sudden, I get a call back a few weeks later from Sharon Osborne, and um, she, uh, you know, says, "Hey, we liked what we heard. We'd like to like you to come down and audition." So I did. I went down and played with Randy Castillo, and who else was? Oh, I think uh, JoJo Holmes was playing guitar at the time, and Mike Inez was there though. I remember that he was just kind of milling around the room, like watching, you know, probably giving his opinion on what he thought of certain bass players. Anyway. And uh, so I, I went down and, and jammed three songs and just played with uh, the band. Ozzy wasn't there. And they liked me enough to bring me back a second time. So anyway, go back down. And I didn't end up playing with Ozzy again. Just ended up doing the same situation, just jamming with the band. I think they were you know, getting some uh, record label people in there as well that were milling around the room. You can tell there was like other people doing other things that were checking out the situation giving opinions and stuff. But um, here's where it gets really crazy and interesting is that, so they had me back another time after that. And I'd say this was a couple months at least. Oh, wow. I know that this was a, like a year and a half, almost two year thing that this was going on all the while, you know, Ozzy was trying to make a new record. Well, I get a call from management and they say, hey, we want you to come down next week to play with Steve Vai. And I said, well, what am I going to play? And why is Steve Vai there? <laughs> you know. So the guy goes, I don't know what you guys are going to play. I go, well, so I'm just going to go walk in and, and, you know, not have any songs learned or anything. And he goes, no, just go down and jam. 
So I was like, wow, man, here it is, a, a guitar hero of mine, Steve Vai, you know, all growing up and through the David Lee Roth era when he was in it, yep. his records flexible and, you know, uh, his solo records anyway. So I went down there and I walk in the room and there's Steve Vai and there's Dean Castronovo playing drums. And I uh, walked in, introduced myself and, and I, I had a, a ghetto blaster with me that I had this, this song that I'd written this these uh this riff and i wanted to show it to steve Vai. i was really ballsy man and <laughs> so i walked in the, in the first thing the security guy goes he goes hey you can't record this uh situation here you know you have to leave that outside i go no i don't want to record us i want to show steve Vai something goes, oh okay okay i'll hold on to it for you so he takes my ghetto blaster man. anyway uh steve Vai walks up and he goes all right i'm just gonna throw a riff at you and let's you know just try to jam see if you can latch onto it and of course he throws this the weirdest odd time you can fucking think of riff at me and i'm standing there which seemed like an hour trying to fucking watch what he's playing but it was probably 30 seconds that i listened to a couple rounds of the riff and i was like all right i got it so i jump in and then uh he stops me puts his hand on my strings and he goes do you play with a pick and i go well i can if you want me to and he hands me his pick he says, now play the riff. So we did the riff thing. And Dean Castronovo jumps in. He's playing drums. And next thing you know, I'm jamming with Steve Vai and Dean Castronovo. And I'm shitting myself. And we end the jam. We did that for about a half an hour. He was just throwing riffs at me and you know, doing that whole bit. Just, just checking me out, see, seeing what I can grab onto quickly. So he says, all right, hey, I think I've heard enough, man. You're really good. You're really good. Like He kept telling me that, which was really encouraging. It felt nice. And, and uh I go, hey, Steve, I really want to show you this, this riff, the song that I have. You know, it reminded me of you. I was kind of influenced by you to write this. And uh, so he goes, well, you know that we're writing for Ozzy's record, right? And I go, well, yeah, yeah, but this is like a total influence thing from you. I went, he goes, well, okay, well, whatever. So I stood there and I, play, I press play and I hold the ghetto blaster up to his face, literally like six inches from his face. And I just hit play and, and I let it roar. and. He listened to the whole thing, four and a half minutes of this, of me playing guitar and drums and everything on it. And it, the song ends and he goes, wow, that really is up my alley. I really like that. He goes, but Ozzy would hate that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Anyway, so I leave, you know, and I felt pretty good about myself and, and the situation. And I was, you know, being told by management the whole time too, that you've got the gig, man. They, they just want you to jump through some hoops and see how you can do this or do that. And they wanted me to do the tour. They wanted me to do the record, which became Osmosis. It got down to the point where my local radio station, I think it was KSJO, a guy named Tim Jeffries, the DJ, he announced that I was a new bass player in Aussie. And I had to call him up and tell him to retract it. Like, dude, this, you can't say that, man. I can't say anything. You're going to blow my chances, you know? And anyway, then I get a phone call from management and they tell me, uh, Hey Aaron, uh, you know, you did a great job. Everyone really liked you, but, um, we're going to go with uh, another guy. And I was like, well, who, who, you know, I was like freaking out. And he goes, uh, it's going to be geezer Butler. You know, it's Ozzy's friend and he needs the money. So they told me, wow, Geezer Butler needed the money. So I basically got pushed aside because Geezer was broke. Wow. And it was awesome. But anyway, I did end up meeting Ozzy real quick at a point there. I went and saw him in, uh, at a show and, you know, got to rap out with him for a little bit. But 
you know, looking back on that situation, it's a cool story, but to tell you the truth, looking back on, I'm really glad I didn't end up in that situation right? because I honestly don't think I would have been ready for something like that. You know, I was like 25, 24. And the reason I say not ready for it was because, uh, I had, you know, a kid at the time, you know, I had a kid at 20 years old. Right. And, you know, so then I was facing something completely alien of like, wow, I'm going to have to take off or what's going to, am I going to have to move? And like, and all these things were going through my head, but, but looking back on it, man, I mean, it could have been cool if it turned out, who knows how it would have turned out really. But, you know, I just feel good that I ended up in one of my favorite bands of all time. And Ozzy's really not one of my favorite, you know, things of all time, yeah. <laughs> as big as he, you know, I mean, shit, if I ended up in Bon Jovi, if I have a choice between like Ozzy or Bon Jovi, man, or, you know, if you're going for a big band, I don't know. Man. That really is a crazy story. That's an amazing story. Thanks for sharing that, man. I appreciate that. That's, that's fun. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of a story Doug Aldridge was telling. I heard him on a podcast uh, recently talking about when he auditioned for Kiss. I don't know if you guys ever heard that story, but um, Doug uh, was doing an interview and he was mentioning it was very reminiscent and, and sounded like the situations that I went through with the Aussie thing. But uh, I'm sure a lot of you know guys, you just don't hear about these types of stories. These guys that are in famous bands that you know jump through the hoops to possibly you know get into a already established big band at the time that was either you know in the mid '80s or late '80s or. I was chuckling to myself because several weeks back, I had the opportunity to interview Greg Chasen, bass player that was in Badlands. And he told a whole story about him auditioning for Ozzy, playing bass, back in the Ultimate Sin days. Uh, because, mm. because that's essentially, that's where he met Jake. Thanks again for sharing that. appreciate that. That was a cool story. Uh, so yeah, man. Awesome. Cool. Aaron, some, uh, well, some people have called you like the Swiss army knife of rock and roll, right? I mean, you play bass, guitar, drums. I know you sing, I know you play keyboards and you're a California guy. So obviously you're writing your own stuff, uh, movies or TV opportunities come up. Like a lot of these guys make money on the side, trying to do that kind of stuff. Yeah. I'd love to jump into something like that. I just don't really know. You know, I haven't, try to pursue it. So I don't have any connections in the movie business or, you know, doing soundtrack work and stuff like that. But I mean, that would, you know, if I did have a connection, trust me, I'd be jumping right into that. That's, that's really my forte. I, I'm more of a composer when it comes to music, composing instrumentals and things, you know, lyric writing is really difficult for me. A lot of times, you know, you co-write with guys that can actually really write good lyrics, you know, but that's like a hard thing to do. And, you know, to, to get that mastered, it's going to be a forever process for me. But when it comes to the composing part of the music, you know, um, I've been told many times, that, oh, man, this sounds like something in a movie or things like that. But, yeah, I've just never uh, had the opportunity to pursue it. So, Aaron, you produced and co-produced a few different artists, correct? Yeah, a handful. Yeah. So this is an interesting thing for me to find out because I didn't know this side of you, which is one of the reasons why we like doing some of these interviews. So did you produce or co-produce James Durbin's record? Uh, I mixed, I mixed five songs on his record. Okay. And, and what about Frank Hannon band? Yeah. Yeah. That was something that Frank, you know, he, 
he wrote he wrote the material on there and then you know i i'd chime in with little bits bridges or whatever you know little ideas here and there but i mixed six songs on that record the first six songs on world peace uh, i did the production on i do you know a lot of production for local bands things like that bands you never heard of you know but i love the studio i love being in a like an actual real recording studio you know where you got a console and you can turn knobs and get some outboard gear lit up and you know get the room hot you know but um yeah you know i've got a little mixing suite here at home and i do little projects here and there mixing you know that world peace record though uh that was um i think frank did co he listed me as a co-producer so when you're doing this producing stuff does the fact that you're a musician help or hinder with that in other words are you do you listen to things differently when you're producing as opposed to if you were just playing on it? Yeah, there's a lot of variables when it comes to being a producer on a project, you know. It just depends on the situation. It depends on who you're working with. It, you can be in a room with guys that, you know, already have their songs carved out and they sound great the way they are and then you're just looking at more just trying to get the band across on a recording, you know, and making the production good, but the, you know, the sonics of it, but there's some uh, guys too that they've just got little bits and pieces of stuff and you got to kind of help, you know, create an arrangement. And that's where being a musician comes in. You know, if you can speak the language and, and know, you know, how to arrange pieces of music into an actual song, then, you know, that's a big help to a lot of guys that, you know, maybe just write lyrics or maybe can only come up with little uh, four bars of this and four bars of that, and then trying to piece it all together, you know? So yeah, it, it's definitely, uh, you know, then there's, there's times too, when being a producer is just shutting the fuck up and letting people do what they do, you know, not always trying to put your stamp on everything or trying to make it about you or, you know, trying to make it sound like you or, but a lot of times, anytime I've, I've really, uh, jumped in with, with a project, you know, it's going to turn out how it's going to turn out. And you just, uh, just roll with the punches. Do you prefer one side or the other? Meaning, do you prefer the playing side versus the producing and mixing side? You mean like if I was in a studio recording my own stuff or? No, I, I mean, just from my personal preference, do you prefer producing slash mixing over being a bass player and just play, laying down tracks? Yeah, I like the producer part of it. I really like the mixing part because to me, that's like, you know, painting a picture, you know, you're, you're taking, uh, sound colors and, you know, creating this, uh, this image, but it's in your ears, if that makes any sense. Yeah, completely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I really enjoy that process of mixing and I actually, like I said, I, I do a lot of it still when I have time, you know, I'm about to possibly take on another project here since, you know, we've got some little downtime, but I really enjoy the mixing process, you know, and recording, you know, getting the sounds, you know, but a lot of uh, people now, you know, they record right into their computer and, you know, they don't need a whole lot of gear to do that or they don't want to take the time to, you know, set up outboard gear and, and an actual console and, you know, in a, in a room and, and mic everything up, you know, is always trying to make it on the cheap, you know. But um, I really like being in those situations, though, when you can uh, be in the room with the gear and walking around and turning the knobs. Like I said, you know, you get sometimes these uh, happy accidents 
you know, because of that, because you're, you're dealing in the real world, you know, not the virtual world, you know, where you can just pull up a plugin and, oh, hey, let's just use this plugin that a thousand other guys use and sound like that, you know. Right. But um, I really enjoy the analog world of it is what I'm trying to say. You know? Sure. Well, so you talked to us and told us a great story about working with Steve Vai, but I know that you've also worked with uh, several other folks, guys like Janie Lane and Mike Tramp and Joel Holkstra, Brad Gillis. Can you fill us in on some of the stuff you've done with those guys? Well, most of all that is just jamming with these guys, you know, having opportunities to be able to play music live with them. Like Joel, you know, like I do the cruise and and I end up playing with Joel on his hangover jam on the cruise. I don't know if you guys saw that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was awesome. We always enjoy the hangover uh, section of the morning. Yeah, it's a, it's a really nice time on the ship, isn't it? I mean, yeah. you know, you get your coffee and you come out and Joel's always entertaining and, and you know, picking good songs. It's a good time. But um, yeah, so it's, it's more or less uh, like the Brad Gillis thing, you know, was a time that I... Uh, Got to jam with him at, at, at this little place called the Little Fox in Redwood City. And um, I uh, did a few songs with him. And, you know, but I've jammed with him over years of just popping up here and there. And yeah, so that list of people that you might have seen, you know, some of them go a little deeper, but some are just, you know, hanging around at the right time and you get to play with these guys, you know, so playing with your heroes, you know. Cool. All right, so let's talk about your stage look a little bit because it's it's unique, right? It's part rocker, part badass. I mean, put a hat on, you could probably be a captain of a pirate ship. Like you got <laughs> you got this, you got this look, and it's awesome because it's hard to look away from. And I think that's the point. But uh, we watch you on the pool stage, and I'm probably about three people deep, and I notice a prince symbol off the belt, and I'm like, he's a prince fan. Where did that come from? Well. That's my ultimate number one, man, is, is Prince. And, but that came, you know, when I was in my teenage years, uh, like 15, 16, when Purple Rain came out and, and I was hooked, man, ever since. And I just have so much love and respect for that guy as a musician, as an artist, as an innovator, as seeing a, a beyond the curve, ahead of the curve, you know, just pretty incredible individual. So, yeah, I've been a fan since I was a teenager, man. Yeah, that's cool. He's my number one, too. <laughs> oh, awesome. Cool. <laughs> hey, Aaron, are you uh, constantly surprised by the worldwide love that uh, Y&T gets as being a, sort of a supposed underground band? Here, let me put it this way. Some bands have fans that they like the music. They... um appreciate the artist they go see them they buy their stuff you know but with y&t fans it's like a family of fans it's a family of friends and it's a family of, of people that are you know they've, they've been with this band since god you know when they were teenagers or early 20s and or even earlier so this has been a lifelong journey through their you know their their life with, with this band and that's what makes it really unique. So I'm not surprised when people show up, man. First off, they know what they want to hear. They know how they wanted the sound. They, you know, they're they're in it, man. And I have a ton of respect for that because I am one of those guys. I'm, I'm a fan of this band. So it's a very unique and special uh, fan base. What does surprise me though is that you know, obviously, like 
thousands of other people would say is why isn't Y and T bigger? Why didn't they ever go the hump? But you know, the the documentary that we just put out explains a lot of that, you know, behind the scenes twists and turns of, of the career of 45 years in rock and roll with Y and T, you know, where they could have gone, but other things had happened and taken place, you know? So it doesn't surprise me that more people haven't heard about the band, but yet it does because usually good music or great music, people find it, man. If they're looking for it, they'll find it. You know, Y&T came out at a whole different time too, man, when there were gatekeepers, you know, to record labels and they, not everybody was putting a record out every day, you know? Yeah. So when something good was coming up, you know, you knew about it because that, that was our world, right? You know, we keep up on that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, it's just a different, whole different uh, way of digesting, I guess, you know, when, when it comes to the uh, finding uh, new bands and, and things like that. Yeah, I think it's like anything else. Uh, music is a timing thing. So one decision, one small decision here can have a domino effect. And I'm sure Y&T, like a lot of other bands, you know, that's that's the case. But uh, they persevered and have been going uh, and probably really and truly doing better business today than they were back in the in the early 80s. So it's all good. It is interesting that you know, Y and T being in the genre of, of I'm not going to name bands. I'm not going to call out bands, but um, there's a lot of bands out touring or, or doing the weekend warrior thing, mostly because they can't tour for long periods of time. But yet here's Y and T that still goes out for two months at a time, either over to Europe or the U S and we can sustain ourselves and play, you know, for two months straight, which is crazy because there's a lot of bands from that era that can't do that anymore. And Y&T never had a really big hit. So that just goes to show the fan base, man, of how loyal and how uh, just in love with the music. And, of course, the original guys, you know, that made that music. So it's cool, man. It's yeah. really cool. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you uh, more. And so I got to say, you've been in the band now for uh, three plus years, right? Uh, it's been four years. At the end of this tour, we just finished up. Four. Yeah, I've been in four years now. Four years. So when you joined this band, were you obligated to be hazed by some of the other guys? I mean, who's the practical joker in this band? Because every band's got one. Uh, yeah, and it's usually the drummer. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so I, you know, the the joker guy of this band is definitely Mike Vanderhill. He is the class clown. You know? Okay, he's a witty fucker, man. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, we have a lot of laughs, you know. And, uh, but everyone has their moments when, when they'll get, get one off. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, Mike, Mike is the, well, I've always told him, man, I'm all, dude, you, sh- you need to open up for wine to do some stand up. you know, <laughs> go out and do it, do a, you know, 10 minutes and, and get the crowd laughing and then we'll come out and play. <laughs> so did you get hazed as the new guy when you came on board? No, no, there was no hazing. You know, what's really cool, man. Like I said, I could have ended up in any other different situation akin to this type of band you know from that genre that era but i ended up in y&t where everyone in this band is so cool and so nice there's no egos there's no you know agendas there's it's just you know four well i always count jill manichetti in there as like the fifth member of course you know so the five of us are all for the common cause of just keeping y&t sounding great and keeping it going, man, as long as the fans want to come out to the shows, you know, and we'll keep coming. 
I got to say, I saw a video of you guys enjoying our beautiful Atlanta traffic right before the Monsters of Rock cruise. I think you guys were probably headed towards uh, Florida at the time. And I see you strolling in between a gridlock traffic with your acoustic guitar doing a little entertaining. Uh, was there anyone who had the slightest idea of who Y&T was? Oh, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> Especially me, man. You know, maybe if Dave was walking down the road with a guitar, I think people probably, you know, maybe a few people would have said, hey, that guy looks like Dave Medichetti. <laughs> no, man, I just got bored sitting in that. We were stalled out for about an hour because it was a, a few cars on fire up ahead yep. that were on a transport truck. And so they closed the freeway down. And I had my guitar in the back and I just decided, you know what, I'm going to get out and see if I can, uh, go, you know, mess with some people. And as I would approach a car, you know, you could see the window rolling up, like I was going to do something bad, you know, not just play him a song. <laughs> so it's funny, man. I just walked, a, walked a few, uh, you know, a few yards down the road. I didn't want to get too far in case, uh, traffic started moving, but yeah, it was fun, man. So we're going to be stuck in our homes for a little bit. Uh, by the time this comes out, maybe we're out. That'd be great. But uh, And I know you do acoustic solo shows. Uh, you were kind of thinking about maybe doing a live stream thing. You think you're going to do it? Yeah, I know I'm going to do it. I just don't know when. And here's why. Because I've been watching some of these other guys doing live streams. You know, And, not, and I'm not talking about like bands, like full bands and stuff like that. But uh, solo guys, like what I do. And especially more like the local guys from around you know, that play in the same places I do around here in the Sacramento area. I just want to do it right. I, I want it to sound good. I want it to look good. I don't want it to look like a guy with a guitar sitting in his bedroom with an iPhone. You know, I want some production value behind it and I want it to sonically sound really good. Uh, if someone's listening to it on a good set of speakers or something, you know, so that's where I'm at with it. I know I'm going to do it. I just want to do it right. So I'm just uh, getting pieces of gear together to be able to stream it correctly. And, I'd like to do like a multi-camera thing, and but I'm just one guy, so I'm trying to figure all that out. I'll definitely do it, possibly even next week. I'm thinking possibly next week, maybe uh, Friday. I'm not for sure yet, though. That's really cool. When we talked to Dave, he really gave you the credit for this whole acoustic classic thing, right? So we knew you were coming on, and I reached out to uh, – two or three of the Y&T fan groups on Facebook. And I said, Hey, you know, I didn't mention you were coming on or John or anybody. And I said, you know, Y&T did that volume one. It had contagious rock and roll going to save the world. Summertime girls, black tiger, barroom boogie rescue me. If they were to do a second album, what song would you want on it? First of all, over 125 people answered in like 12 hours. I could not believe it. There was 57 different Y&T songs that got a vote. But I'm going to tell you what the top 10 were. I think it's a pretty good list. Okay. Uh, and I'll go from 10 to 1. So 10 Lovers, Lonely Side of Town, I'm Coming Home, 25 Hours a Day, I Believe in You, Forever, of course, Don't Stop Running, which we know you've done at some of the wine gigs, so we know that exists, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, the number two was this time, and number one was Midnight in Tokyo. Is that crazy? <laughs> That's some good ones. There's some good ones on that list. Yeah, we did do uh, a couple off of that list at a couple live gigs. And those will probably end up on the second one. And we did discuss doing a, a, 
you know, the, I, there is volume one, so there's got to at least be volume two. So we're kind of committed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dave kind of alluded to, I think he put, vo- he wanted to put volume one on there to push me to do volume two. He kind of alluded to that. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're kind of committed to two and then we can stop there if we want. But I think that, uh, that's a good list. <laughs> we'll, we'll email that to you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll message it to you. So you got it. The thing about that list though, is yeah, there, those are all great songs and great ideas. It's different though. When you have the acoustic guitars in your hand and then you start to play, like, let's say I'm coming home. It just, I don't even know if we've already tried it. I want to say well, maybe we did try it and it just doesn't come off with that glorious, you know, and what you're used to hearing kind of thing. It's, most Y&T songs aren't going to translate to acoustic because you have to have Dave's searing solos and the melodic part of his solo playing on his, uh, you know, uh, on the electric, you know, with the sustain and all that kind of thing. But um, some songs lend real well, like this time, maybe this time might make it this time, you know? I 100% get what you're saying there, Aaron, because you're absolutely right. There are some songs that just don't sound correct in an acoustic guitar. And at the same time, there were some songs like on that first acoustic record where I was really surprised how Ballroom Boogie came out. That came out awesome. Yeah, man. Yeah, that, that was something that, again, we didn't go into that with that in mind. It's just kind of that when we started to play it, we just started throwing around like maybe a half the beat there, you know, and, and, or break it down here or, you know, so until you get the guitars in your hand and you get Mike in the room with you pounding on stuff, you know, then you can really kind of grasp instantly whether it's going to work or not. You know, some songs, uh, well, we were going to put afraid of the dark on the first one. We actually recorded it and we listened back. And, and again, it just doesn't have that grand, you know, I mean, I guess it could if you overdubbed a bunch of stuff with it, but then it wouldn't really be truly just, you know, a laid back acoustic approach, you know, and that's what we were trying to do with this volume one was keep it still the band, you know, it's live basically, but some of those songs, you'd have to probably stack some stuff on there to, to give it that big sound, you know, don't want to do the song injustice just to, you know, put it on there as an acoustic version. I've heard bands do that. And it just snuffs out, you know, it's like, wow, okay, I'll I'll never listen to that again. (laughs) Yeah. When you guys are putting set lists together, do you or any of the other guys, do you guys uh, get together and maybe pull out songs that haven't been played in a while or ever been played? I mean, I, I don't know. There's a lot of material there to go through. So, yeah. That's a really cool thing about Y&T as well. The catalog, man, you got just so much great stuff to pull from. And it's hard, man. It's hard to make a set list. And we play for two, sometimes two hours and 15 minutes. I mean, we did almost a three-hour gig in Japan. It was crazy. We had like three or four encores. So it took us almost three hours to finish that show. But to answer the question, you know, with with, uh, the set list, there's certain songs you have to play. We all know that. Yep. And then filling in those holes, like when we just did the 45th anniversary tour, we played at least one from every record. That was fun because then you can go way back and reach deep into something and pull that in and, and introduce even a hardcore fan may not, you know, know of 
you know, struck down or something, you know, or earth shaker, you know, I'm sure hardcore fans know that, but you know, let's just say this, the casual summertime girl fan may not, or probably doesn't know struck down. Right. Right. Pulling that stuff out and being able to, to play that, man, that was really cool. And we're still playing, uh, earth shaker, you know, on this last tour, we still have that in the set. Yeah, man, when we're in the dressing room before the gig and, and we don't make our set list too early in the day, you know, because things can change. It's usually, you know, 20 minutes before we go on, 15 minutes or so, you know, because Dave switches stuff out like, hey, I just took that one out. We're going to do this now, like last second <laughs> or scratch it out and use a Sharpie, you know. But uh, no, that's the fun. 
man. Making those set lists every night, you know, pulling out this. I mean, you guys do a good job at uh, switching up songs on the Monsters of Rock cruise. And I know as a fan and uh, somebody who goes deep into the catalog, I always appreciate seeing different sets and different songs. You know, like you said, there's certain songs you just have to play and that's a given. But we like it when you guys switch stuff out. That's always fun for us. Yeah, man. Yeah, it's fun for, for us, too. You know, and that's going to continue. You know, I mean, trying to look at other, you know, I mean, it seems like the, with a career this long, there's always an anniversary of a record, you know, so being able to reach into certain albums, like even from the 90s, you know, when we were doing 21st Century, I mean, I'd never even heard that song and I'm a Y&T fan, but I had never heard that song until it was presented that we were going to play it. And I was like, holy shit, man. And it became like my favorite song to play of the night, you know shit maybe we should bring that one back now i think about it awesome well you've been awesome uh we appreciate your time we want to get into a few more things here before we let you go are you uh up for playing what we like to call a little bit of a lightning round (laughs) okay yeah all right uh so the object of this is just don't overthink it just give us whatever pops into your mind the first thing that pops into your mind song you wish you'd wrote purple rain non-rock slash metal guilty pleasure non-rock slash guilty pleasure god i don't know duran duran you know like girls on film cool i love it first concert uh kiss cow palace 1979 dynasty tour i was 10 years old Woo! wow uh radio sirius xm iphone or streaming I'm really digging SiriusXM, and and there's a couple reasons. The main reason is that channel volume, and Eddie Trunk has his show on volume, and I listen to that show all the time. I dig that. But what's really got me, man, is the Tom Petty's Buried Treasure channel and how much music that I've been turned on to through that. I was just listening to some Ann Peebles yesterday, and man, that's like my favorite artist right now. I put her stuff on, man, and that just soothes my soul. You know, I'm really into uh, more like soul and and R and B and Motown kind of stuff. That's really my my those are my jams. I, I choose to put on, you know, um, when I put on music, you know, some James Brown or uh, Otis Redding, you know, stuff like that. But yeah, so I'm gonna go with Sirius XM. All right, I'm gonna be honest with you, Aaron. Right now, I think my co-host Sonny Hollywood Pooney over there is. Uh, secretly like your soulmate when it comes to music because <laughs> i love motown i love motown <laughs> there are so many things in this interview where i'm just like oh sonny's loving this because sonny's a huge prince fan and he's into uh motown and r&b and i love all that stuff too but sonny really loves it so uh, i just thought i'd throw that in there back to the lightning round name two desert island records two records you take to the desert island with you well i'm just gonna think quick about it oh god well definitely the gold experience prince man you know that it could only be two two records <laughs> man wow i'm already surprised you picked the gold experience not that that's a bad record it's just an interesting choice yeah yeah well i man you know that's almost an unanswerable question really i don't know man iron maiden peace of mind there (laughs) 
<laughs> Randy Rhodes or Eddie Van Halen? <laughs> Eddie all the way, man. All right. How about this? Getty Lee or Chris Squire? I'll do a bass one for you. Getty Lee. All right. Zeppelin or the Beatles? Beatles. You sing in the shower or the car? And what are you singing? Well, I'm singing in both. And I'm singing, I don't know, man, probably a Prince song. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a good falsetto, Aaron? <laughs> Ooh, man, it's one of my strong points. All right. Yeah. I know I'm on a tangent here, but I, I am going to do a live stream, uh, a one hour live stream of all Prince stuff acoustic. So there. Okay. Yeah, it's coming up. So Awesome. <laughs> all right. Fender, Ibanez, or Gibson? Ibanez. I love Ibanez basses, but I'm going to have to go with Gibson when it comes to a guitar. All right. Coke or Pepsi? Well, I don't try not to drink either, but I'd go with Coke. Talk or text? Talk. Favorite NFL team? Not into sports. Biggest pet peeve? Oh, man. I got so many pet peeves. (laughs) (laughs) The tradition of Festivus begins with the airing of grievances. I got a lot of problems with you people. Now, you're going to hear about it. I do, man. I got a lot of pet peeves. And if I could only pick one, I'd say don't stand too close to me. (laughs) (laughs) Don't stand so close to me. You know, that's a great song, right? And people that talk over one another, like if someone's trying to talk and then the other person just won't shut up and then you can't never have a conversation because one person just talks the whole time. That's a pet peeve. I, I'm going to wait till there's clearly space for me to talk now. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that was the name. Stephen, that was that was uh, just you know in, in a daily uh, living, you know. <laughs> Last song you heard? Last song I heard. Well, I was just having dinner a minute ago, and something was on. It was, oh man, I think it was the Cars. Uh, like, let's go. <laughs> cool song. All right. So this is the last one. One must have for you, either on the tour bus, the dressing room, or if you, you guys, I think use a slider van as opposed to a tour bus. So, uh, what is one of your must haves? Well, I always like to have honey. I got to have honey in the dressing room. Perfect. That's it. All right. Way to go, Aaron. You, you survived. So, Aaron, before we let you go, we want to talk a little Kiss, since you're a huge Kiss fan. Who yeah. is your Kiss member, and what is your fra- favorite Kiss album? Well, Gene's always been my favorite Kiss member, and my favorite Kiss record, I, I'm going to have to say, uh, man, well, the live records are kind of like hits records, so if I just had to pick like a record, I'm going to go with the first record. And I'm assuming you've seen a bunch. Have you seen them lately? Like, have you seen them in the last 10 or 15 years? Or are you pretty much, uh, I saw them before, I'm good? Yeah, I've probably seen them in the, in the you know, last 10 years. But I'm not really interested in seeing them anymore. You know, just, I've seen enough. <laughs> you, know, it's just, you know, you know, if you've been to a, to a Kiss show, you know what's coming up next. And, you know, all the routines and the stuff. But, yeah, I probably saw them 10 years ago. Yeah, it's probably the last time I saw him. Yeah, that's cool. Because, yeah, we had heard a story about you singing uh, Cheap Trick Surrender and throwing out Kiss live albums. You know, if you're just giving away albums, you can throw some my way if you want. 
<laughs> well, I had two copies of that. And when I was going to, it was a, a charity event or something, but, um, and I, yeah, when I sang surrender and, and he does that lyric, you know, got my kiss records out, whatever. And I used to always uh, think that was cool when Rick Nielsen would throw a kiss record out. So, you know, I, I just had to do it, man. And the records were in it and the inner sleeve and the poster was in that kiss alive record too. So wh- whoever got that, man, you know, you got yourself a, a very good condition kiss alive. <laughs> wow. Cool. Well, pleasure to have you on today. There is absolutely no doubt about it. Well, thank you very much, guys. Much appreciated. Hey, we appreciate it too. We, uh, hopefully look forward to, uh, meeting you, shaking your hand in February on the next monsters of rock cruise. I'm hoping that everything is back to normal by then, or at least the new normal. Yeah, and the new normal will be no more shaking hands. <laughs> we look forward to bumping your elbow, man. <laughs> uh, no, that's standing too close to him. I'm going to have to say hi like about 10 people away. No, we'll have to do like the Japanese and bow to each other, you know. <laughs> it's all good, man. Hey, once again, thanks for coming on. Best of luck uh, in the upcoming months. Uh, hopefully you guys get back out there on the road and everything gets back to the new normal. And uh, we will uh, we will holler at you uh, next time. We'll let you know when all this stuff is coming out. Sounds good, guys. Thank you so much. And uh, just as a last bit here, any YNT shows that have been canceled, uh, original dates are post. They're just postponed and they're rescheduled. So just take a look at the YNT tour dates, and you can get updated dates there. Uh, keep your ticket if you want to come to the show. If you don't, you can get a refund. So all good. Yep. And we'll tie all that information together in our show notes. So definitely uh, we'll give folks a place to go find all the latest updates on the YNT tour for sure. Sounds good, guys. Thanks, man. Have a good night. All right. You too. Talk to you later. See ya. Bye. Bye. Get ready to shuffle, rattle, and roll. Play us out, boys.
please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.